Good morning, this is Heim Goodman-Strauss with The Math Factor, and this week we have a wonderful treat, a conversation with Greg Chaitin, who's written many very interesting articles and books, uh, most recently, or at least uh, most recently before this was taped, Metamath, with two exclamation points, a fabulous journey through the irreducible complexity of randomness and many other things. Uh, this interview is quite long, and I never really... It was actually taped three years ago. I never put it up for a couple of reasons. First of all, I never was able to figure out how to chop it into smaller segments, sort of more typically, more typical math factor segments. And second of all, because this really needed a certain kind of introduction that I never was able to work out. And last week's piece with Stephen Wolfram does the job very nicely. I'd also like to uh, ask you to take a look at an article in the notices of the American Mathematical Society that appeared last month on undecidable puzzles and games that presents these ideas through things that you can actually work out with pencil and paper. Without further ado, Greg Chayton. The real question that uh, has obsessed me uh, since I was a kid, and I guess you could say it uh, ruined my life, or depending <laughs> on your point of view, is the question of ghettos and completeness theorem. And that's a weird result because um, it's a mathematician using mathematical methods in a way to attack mathematical methods or to put shed doubt on on the axiomatic method and, and formal reasoning. Basically, and, using math to undermine itself in a certain way. Exactly, exactly. And I thought this was absolutely weird. And so the first thing I wanted to do as a kid was understand this. It attracted me. Uh, as if it were general relativity or black holes or you know something really mysterious. Uh, and the second big question uh, that was personal, a personal thing. But the, the the big question for the human race is to decide how seriously to take this result of Gödel's, because uh, it's not clear whether you should just shrug your shoulders and go on carry on just as before doing math the traditional way or whether Gödel's result really means that mathematics is different from what most people uh, traditionally have thought it, it, you, it is. You know, I've really noticed that. Mathematicians tend to, exactly, they say, oh, this is somehow on the fringes of you know, their profession, and yet it really does touch every field deeply, intimately. In my own work in geometry, um, you know, decidability questions are right there, right at the surface, everywhere you turn. In geometry, uh well, for example, with uh, the there's various kinds of decidability questions in discrete geometry, like any cognitive field with combinatorial structures. Mm -hmm. You know that. Um, well, kind of piling the plane, for example. Yeah, exactly. Right. That I knew about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I bet my life on the idea that that maybe maybe Gödel's result, which basically was shrugged off by the math community, although it fascinates people, thinking people everywhere. Uh, to the dismay of the math community, I would say, uh, who think it's being overinterpreted, I bet my life on the idea that maybe it was really revolutionary and it was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I agree with that. Great. That's but why we called you. This is the, the maximum <laughs> rock the boat point of view. Right. So I thought somebody should uh, should go out on a limb and try to see if... Uh, if uh, if maybe this was really serious and math was really different from what most people thought, and since nobody else seemed to want to do it, I guess I nominated myself for that job, which doesn't make me too popular with some members of the math community, I guess. 
Um, so in your book, you discuss uh, Leibniz's view of these kinds of questions. I thought that was really quite fascinating that already 300 years ago, someone was thinking along these lines. What well, were... Leibniz is a really r- remarkable guy uh, in many, many ways. Uh, and um, it's a, it was a very interesting period when, when, when Leibniz lived because modern science was just, uh, was just starting. And uh, it was a, a crossroads. Uh, you had the the ideas of the Middle Ages colliding with the mechanistic philosophy, I think it was called then, or mechanical philosophy, and modern science, and the idea that maybe the world was ruled by mathematics. And uh, that was an, a very exciting period because people were really thinking about all of this uh, at a deep level, and, and Leibniz is a very deep person, so he asked himself a lot of questions. Uh, he was like a butterfly going from field to field, throwing out good ideas. And he asked himself uh, in one of um, his um, um, manuscripts, which are, is basically himself, he thinking out loud, these, are, these manuscripts are notes to himself, he asked himself a very crucial question, which is how you can tell the difference between a world where science is possible, where science works, and a world where science doesn't work. Uh, another way to put it is how can you tell uh, if there is a scientific law or not? I mean, what is this notion of law, a law of science or law of physics? Uh, how can you distinguish a world in which there are laws from a world in which there aren't? Mm-hmm. Which is a very basic, uh, extremely basic question that nobody asks nowadays because we take for granted that science works and that the world is ruled by mathematics. But uh, Leibniz asked himself that question because at that time that was a... Uh, I think it was a uh, it was a relevant issue to the revolution that was going on. Uh, he saw going on around him, and in which he participated so as how, a physicist, as a mathematician. So what did he come up ways. with? Yeah. So what did he come up with? Well, he throws out. Uh, he has a, uh, a a manuscript called the Discourse on Metaphysics. Although, in fact, uh, it was never published in his lifetime, and uh, that title was put by. Uh, by an editor who found it and published it, I think, uh, 50 or 100 years later. And um, in there, he throws out the idea, the following idea, which I think is really beautiful. He says, take a piece of paper and, um, and splatter it with uh, spots of ink, you know, with a quill mm-hmm. pen. So you close your eyes and you just at random um, uh, put some dots on a piece of paper. And uh, Leibniz says, think of this as your experimental measurements of some physical system. Mm-hmm. So this is your experimental data. Now, he says, what is a law of physics? How can you tell whether these, uh, these points follow or not? Well, he says, you might at first think that the, uh, the existence of a mathematical equation passing through this finite set of points, uh, that that would be a law. But, he says, uh, that doesn't work because... Um, there's always an equation passing through any finite set of points. That, w- mm-hmm. that was, I guess, sort of obvious to Leibniz, although uh, uh, I guess the easiest way to prove that is called, uh, is it called Lagrangian interpolation? Mm-hmm. It's probably the easiest way to prove that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was later, but, you know, considering that Leibniz invented the calculus, uh, uh, you, can, you can guess that it was sure. obvious to him that there would always be a, an equation passing through any finite set of points, and in fact, you can ask high school students to try to figure that out. It's a, it's a nice little challenge. Uh, I think I did it when I was uh, a kid. So, 
So anyway, uh, it was in a book by W. W. Sawyer. Okay, so so there's always an equation passing through a mathematical equation passing through any set of measurements. So that the existence of a mathematical equation through a set of points on a graph that cannot enable you to tell the difference between points that follow a law and don't follow a law. Mm -hmm. So what is the crucial the crucial thing? Well, the crucial thing, says Leibniz, is that the equation should be simple. Because mm. if the equation is complicated, there's always an equation. So that's right. meaningless. But if you have a simple equation, ah, then, then maybe there actually is a law. So that's how you can tell the difference. Now, Hermann Weyl, in 1932, uh, a wonderful mathematician, a student of Hilbert, a uh, mathematical physicist also, uh, Hermann Weyl, in 1932, um, put it um, in a very dramatic form, this observation. Uh, I, I learned of the work of Leibniz through, uh, through Hermann Weyl. Um, uh, I didn't used to read Leibniz until, uh, mm -hmm. until Hermann Weyl pointed me at... Uh, 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 at Leibniz's work. And uh, what Weil in 1930, 1932 did, uh, uh, explaining this idea of Leibniz, he put it in the following dramatic terms. He says, the concept of law, of scientific law, or law of physics, is, uh, is vacuous if you, uh, if you allow an arbitrarily complicated law, because then there's always a law, mm -hmm. which I think is a very... You just have an additional case for each new piece of data that comes your basically, way. Basically, yes. Basically, yes. That's basically it. That's right. This is right. Exactly. Exactly. So this is a very simple idea, but in Leibniz's usual way, it goes to the heart of the matter. Now, uh, and, um, and this was 1686, so that's uh, a while back. Um, in fact, it's the year before, to give you an idea, it's, I think, the year before Newton publishes his, uh, his famous Principia, so, so would you say that uh, science then is necessarily reductionist in its nature? Well, I guess that's what this definition is saying. That's what this definition mm -hmm. is saying, which, uh, which, uh, I, it says understanding is reductionist. I mean, um, if you can understand something, understanding what this says is that understanding something is to reduce it, mm -hmm. is to compress it, is to let me put let me put it another way. Let me put it another way that Leibniz put it, which is uh, beautiful but sounds theological. But you can ignore the theology. What Leibniz says um, uh, in the same uh, discourse on metaphysics is that God has created a world which, on the one hand, is very rich in phenomena and diversity in. Uh, in, uh, well, it has us, for example, and solar systems and galaxies. But all this very complicated, rich, diverse, wonderful world full of interesting things, God cre maximizes the richness and diversity uh, of the world on the one hand and minimizes the complexity of the laws of the mathematics mm -hmm. uh, which determines this world. Mm -hmm. So he says the universe optimi is, is, uh, is the best possible wor world in the sense that it's, well, this mathematically isn't well, too well-founded, but on the one hand, you maximize the, 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 the richness of the world and all the phenomena, the physical phenomena that take place, and on the other hand, you minimize the, 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 the mathematical laws which determine all of this. So let me... Let me yeah, uh... So this is the idea that the world, although it looks complicated, is actually very simple. This is the idea that science will discover beautiful laws, concise laws, which, uh, which explain the physical world.
Leibniz didn't have a conventional religious beliefs, apparently, because uh, he, he never, almost never was seen in a church. But at some deep level, um, he, he believed uh, in, in, in God, in some kind of abstract God, maybe close to Spinoza's God. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kind of God a mathematician or a physicist could love. Uh, the, uh, you may ask, uh, what role did God play in, in Leibniz's uh, uh, thinking? And in a way, you could say, you could say well, he, he picked the original laws of physics, which determine the... Right the universe and after that everything is a consequence is a is a consequence so you may say well that's not much of a of a god but it is a first cause mm-hmm. i mean it um uh, it um well that's so a these, g- these things uh, these things are very interesting to argue about <laughs> <laughs> so i guess that's really it though is setting up an axiomatic system say for a universe and then following the consequences and all the richness that 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 brings yeah so the idea the idea of Leibniz was that the world is wonderful because it's very, very rich, but all this is a consequence of very, very simple mathematics. Right. Or very simple laws of physics, which determine the whole thing. And the beauty is the contrast between the richness of the world we see and the simplicity of the laws. So this is just a statement that science works. I mean, that mm-hmm. uh, this is what it means for science to work, is what Leibniz is really saying. This compression or this this reduction, uh, or the fact that the laws of, uh, of, uh, of the determine the universe are simple mathematically, you see. So this, so this is his analysis of, of, of what science is really all about. Now, now, this is a very beautiful idea, and like many beautiful ideas that Leibniz has, uh, he then goes off like a butterfly mm-hmm. and, and never comes back to it, you know, leaving this among his among his personal papers and letters to thousands right. intellectuals, all the intellectuals of Europe at the time. But um, uh, some people did take up this idea uh, earlier in the 1900s, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s. Uh, Herman Weil, I already mentioned, 1932, another person discussing these kinds of ideas was Karl Popper, mm-hmm. that I read as a right. child. Karl Popper has a beautiful book called The Logic of Scientific Discovery. So there were... There were a few people discussing this notion of complexity and simplicity and, and what is a law. Herman Weil himself uh, published a, a longer book, Princeton University Press, uh, on the philosophy of mathematics and natural science, where he discusses these same things in which I read uh, when I was very young and uh, discusses Leibniz, but somehow he doesn't discuss it in as dramatic a way as he does in a 1932 uh, little book that I call The Open World. Uh, 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 lectures at Yale in 1932 mm-hmm. that I discovered only uh, you know a few years ago. So, so what these people, when Karl Popper and, the, and these people uh, raised these issues again, was and Hermann Weyl, what they notice is, well, it would be nice since this concept of complexity is so fundamental. Leibniz already saw that. How do you define it? Yeah, how do you define it? And the obvious way to define it looks pretty unsatisfactory, which is to say, well, just look at the size of an equation. And I think uh, Herman Weil points out well, or maybe it's Popper, I don't remember. Well, you know, that depends uh, on the year that you're doing the mathematics, right. because mathematical notation is constantly changing. And w- what's to stop you from changing the notation in the middle as you go? So, so, so the general conclusion, uh, Karl Popper says it, uh, I think, in The Logic of Scientific Discovery, when he uh, 
refers to Herman Weil, is, well, it's a very fundamental problem, but, uh, you know, he, Herman Weil couldn't solve it. He called Popper can't solve it. Uh, it's a difficult problem. So, so uh, in a way, all my work can be explained as adding one tiny little idea to this train of thought. And that tiny little idea is to say, don't think about mathematical theories as equations. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's wrong. Historically, that's how people do physics and science. But don't think about that. Change the viewpoint a little and think of a mathematic, uh, physical theory as a computer program, a software. Mm -hmm. a, a, an equation is just a very special form of, of such a thing, isn't it? Exactly. So. That's what we would say nowadays. Right. Sure. I mean, now everything is software, right? right. Everything is digital in our current uh, world, right? Photographs, videos, uh, books. Right. So, so this is a natural point of view to have nowadays. Maybe it wasn't so natural uh, in 1965 when... Uh, but already then, uh, you know, I was really excited as a kid by the computer. It was clear that the computer was something incredibly revolutionary, not just as technology, but also as an idea. Right. So, so let's think of a theory not as a equ mathematical equation, but let's think of it as software, as a program. And in particular, the viewpoint I have is, is very simple and straightforward. It's just that uh, instead of having an equation determine uh, a, a graph or a curve on graph paper, going through the points of, uh, of your observations, let's just think of calculating uh, what you observed. Explaining, mm -hmm. you, you, using software, the theory, your theory is software, a computer program, and what it does, if it's a good theory, is it calculates what you observed, I mean, what mm -hmm. the, the way the physical universe behaved. And so you eliminate all the, all the software, all the programs that calculate the wrong thing, that don't correspond to what you, what, how, how the way your physical system behaved. So, so I'm thinking, in fact, to make the model really simple, I think of the, your data as just a string of zeros and ones, which is what underneath uh, uh, is every, everything in a computer is zero, is, are bits, zeros mm. and ones. And I think of the theory as zeros and ones. So this is a, a, toy, a toy system. You digitalize, you, you discretize uh, uh, the, whole, the whole thing. And so... So, so for me, your experimental data, the world you want to explain, is just a finite string of zeros and ones. And your theory is also a finite string of zeros and ones. It's a program that calculates exactly that. And a good theory is a short program. Exactly. Could, could we... That's the complexity of a theory. So that's a couple of examples that have come up for us in the last couple of weeks. Is, uh, last, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, a few weeks ago, about Graham's number, which has a very, very short... Uh, description as a program, as we had some readers send in. Mm -hmm. And, yet and it's, it's an a, enormous, enormous a big number. Impossibly big. And um, and yet, so it has this very com incredibly compressed form. Or right. another example that you mentioned is the, are the digits of pi, right? Exactly. That, that can also be completely compressed. But the generic number, the generic counting number, or the generic real number, essentially has no uh, real compression. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly... That's exactly right. Um, um, if you look at, um, at real numbers, you know, uh, 3.1415926e, uh, pi, the square root of 
to pretty much any number we would name in any way as an algebraic expression or anything. Yeah, right? has an infinite number of digits. If you want to calculate it with uh, infinite precision, you just go calculating more and more accurately the number, right. so you never stop. But that infinite number of digits really is uh, is only apparent. There's only a finite amount of information because <laughs> there's a, in each of these cases there's a, a simple, a small computer program that will calculate the whole number right. as much as you want. But it's true that if you look at the general case of an arbitrary real number, you know, pick a real number at random between zero and one, you know, with uniform probability distribution, mm -hmm. and the probability is zero, is infinitesimal of getting a a, a number that can be compressed into a, a finite number of bits. In fact, with probability one, the number you get will be incompressible. Right. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. So in a way, most most real numbers. Uh, uh, these are are rather atypical. Right. <laughs> They're not at all like the real numbers we know and love and we see in mathematics, like the square root of two. Right. Which only has a finite amount of information. Well, in the same way, you know, maybe mathematical truths are exactly the same thing. I guess that's your point that the mathematical truths that we can compress or tr touch are a very small fraction of all possible mathematical truths. Yeah, that's that's the what this suggests. That's exactly the idea. What this whole right. viewpoint suggests is that maybe the places where we find beautiful, elegant mathematics uh, are in some sense uh, the exception to the rule, and that a lot of areas of mathematics have no structure and, and no theory and no pattern, if, uh, if this analogy can, if this metaphor can be taken seriously. I'm not saying, I, you know, I love mathematics. I have nothing against mathematics. But what this viewpoint suggests is that the world of mathematics has infinite complexity and even has uh, randomness and, and irreducible complexity in some places. It's a shocking idea. Yeah. It's sort of the opposite extreme from the traditional idea, which is sort of the Euclidean or the Hilbertian idea, that all of mathematics was a consequence of a small number of self-evident lo logical and mathematical principles that we could all agree on, you know, like Euclidean geometry or Zermelo-Frankel set theory, uh, the tradition, yeah, and it's a shocking idea to say that the, wor that ma the world of mathematics perhaps is infinitely complicated, and, and then maybe it begins to look a little bit more like botany, <laughs> you know, or biology. Right. Uh, That's a uh, good way to put it, because in those kinds of fields, the, the, right, the theories are so, they are reductionist necessarily, because, but, you know, biological systems are so complicated and so intricate that we can't really understand them fully. Yeah, there are no right. equations. I mean, right. the traditional mathematics doesn't seem to work too well in biology uh, right. at this time. So one way that this seems to play out from my perspective is that if you have an arbitrary set of little combinatorial rules, you know, this shows up all over mathematics where, you know, little gadgets can fit together in certain kinds of ways. For example, in a logical expression, the symbols can only fit together in certain ways. Or in abstract algebra, in a group presentation, the group elements only fit together in a certain way. Or in my and I think about discrete geometry, and you have tile pieces, and they can only fit together in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Or in the rules of like a game, like Go, where the pieces can only act in relationship to each other in certain ways. But generically, the case seems to be that you get rich and unpredictable and crazy, crazy behavior that you can't really fathom with any sort of short reason. That there is a reason, but the reason is so long and so difficult to explain that it's not really a reason in the sense that we usually mean. Well, yeah. 
look, there are, there are positive ways of, of putting this. Instead of making it sound pessimistic and negative, uh, you know, that math has limits, another mm -hmm. way to put it is that, that there's infinite scope for creativity in mathematics, that mm -hmm. mathematics will never be exhausted, That's but you'll right. always need new we'll ideas. will always be employed. Which I'm is, sorry? will always be employed. Yeah. Which is a good... Yeah, sure. That's that's the positive way to look at it. You know that 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 um, if if mathematics had been what 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 Hilbert thought, uh, you know, which is the Euclidean model, that you have this finite set of axioms and you just apply logic, well, Poincaré ridiculed uh, the great French mathematician Poincaré about a century ago ridiculed this idea, hmm. and he said, well, it's like a, it's like a the proverbial sausage-making machine in Chicago, I guess it's probably not in Chicago anymore, but Chicago <laughs> I've never heard of uh, slaughterhouses. Uh -huh. The proverbial uh, sausage-making machine in Chicago that pigs go in one, one door and sausages come out the other. Mm. I mean, mathematics would just be a machine for grinding out sausages. Right. You just m mechanically apply the rules of logic to your axioms, uh, the rules of symbolic logic, and you would get all of mathematics. Mm -hmm. Now it's true that it's true that it would come out rather slowly from this machine, uh, because um, it would take you a long time to get, say, through all proofs one page long. The, 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 the number of proofs of a given size grows exponentially. But but that's a detail. Uh, you know, that's a that's a that's a practical consideration from a conceptual point of view. All of mathematics would just be like a sausage making machine, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and Poincaré didn't like that vision of mathematics uh, as a machine. Uh, Hilbert, I think, was from Prussia, you know, so it was like oh. a big army of, of logic just grinding forward mercilessly yeah, and without depressing. thinking. Yeah. You know, so he didn't like that, that vision of mathematics. And what, what Gettle's work and Turing's work and what I've tried to deepen is the idea that mathematics is not limited that way. It cannot be put in a prison like that. And that really you need new ideas. You're going to need always more and more mm. new ideas. Because uh, no finite set of ideas, no finite set of axioms can capture all of mathematical truth. And so, so in a way this is an optimistic point of view. It means that future generations have uh, infinite scope for creativity. You know, our kids or our grandchildren are not going to be bored because there's going to be more to discover so or more to invent or <laughs> to, you're going to have to be creative even in theory a machine if you don't even if you don't care about time a machine cannot cannot mechanically grind out all of mathematical truth so 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 the, the so that stated that way this probably sounds uh good rather than bad right so uh, one, so um, one of the things that you're famous for is your omega. Could you tell us a bit about that? That'll. Yeah. Well, uh, omega is. The, of course, we'll have the, to back up, I guess, and talk about, you know, the halting problem and. Yeah. Well, omega is my attempt to exhibit um, um, complete lack of structure in pure mathematics. I'm trying to find a concrete example, the the the, the most concrete example I can, mm -hmm. of a place. In pure mathematics, where uh, where there's no structure or pattern, and 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 there's no way to understand something, so so um, that's what omega does. It's 
to use terminology from creationists, but not deliberately, mm-hmm. uh, it's just uh, in a different way than they use it, what, what you could say is that the digits or the bits of this real number, omega, are irreducibly complex. Mm-hmm. That is to say, there is no structure, there is no pattern, there is no way to un- understand them. In other words, if you're interested in knowing the numerical value of this, uh, this number, this uh, omega number, uh, it it turns out that it's sort of maximally unknowable. The um, the the digits have absolutely no no structure that we can that we can detect or, or that. Um, but it's not a random number. No, but it's not a random number. It's true that most real numbers have this same property that I just mentioned. You can show that with probability one. Most real numbers have this property, but you may not believe in it because, in fact, every real number that we've ever seen, every particular real number, like the square root of 2 pi and e, is not at all like this, mm-hmm. right? It's maximally compressible. So how do you find a real number where the digits, each digit is a complete surprise, you know, and, and there are no, uh, there is no pattern? Well, it turns out that you can do it taking an idea from 1936, from, from Alan Turing, and, uh, you know, he could have come up with this idea if he hadn't, A, gotten distracted with uh, the Second World War, where he contributed a lot to the British right. uh, effort, and B, if he hadn't uh, died young. Yeah, tragically. So, right, exactly. Um, right, much younger than I am now, so it seems very young to me <laughs> when he died. So, so, so anyway, what is this idea that, that, uh, of Turing's, and what do you do to it <coughs> to show that you can find irreducible complexity, uh, a good specific example of irreducible complexity in pure math. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that it's sort of there in a sense everywhere, but the problem is to find a particular example because otherwise why should I believe in it mm-hmm. if I don't? I'm trying to find the most concrete example possible, right? So, so what you do is you go back to Turing, and Turing in his famous 1936 paper on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidstum problem in that paper, uh, which was published in the Proceedings of the London Math Society, um, that famous paper, um, what people nowadays remember is that Turing sort of uh, creates the computer uh, business right. in a way. He comes up with the Turing machine, which is a, a toy a, a version of a general purpose computer, and in a way what you see is a pure mathematician or logician, I don't know what you want to call Turing, uh, in a way, creating a trillion-dollar industry. Right. Now, of course, he isn't the only person who made it possible to create uh, the computer business, but but mathematicians, you know, like to exaggerate a little bit and and tell the story from their point of view, and you can sort of try to make a case. Von Neumann's point of view was that 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 Turing's paper really had the essential idea of software mm-hmm. as opposed to hardware, flexible machines. And he, uh, I, I, I read essays by von Neumann, uh, who was very influential um, during and, uh, and, sh- and after the war in the United States. So, so anyway, so this is what people remember of this paper. But, you know, who cares about technology and billions of dollars or trillions of dollars? From a mathematical or a philosophical point of view, what Turing's 1936 paper shows is that there are uncomputable real numbers that you can't calculate it. It's or that there are problems uh, where uh, there is no algorithm to mathematical problems where there is no algorithm to find the answer. You know, we should we should really highlight that, right? Well, many people that are listening may not have really ever heard that before. 
That is just truly a staggering and really mind-blowing observation. Yeah, it really is. I mean, on the one hand, in a sense, Turing invents the computer industry, or the notion of a computer, and immediately he says that there are very simple mathematical questions which cannot be solved using a computer. Right. Isn't that breathtaking? <laughs> it's incredible. It's really incredible. And I guess the fundamental reason really might be simply that there are more real numbers than there are possible computer programs to compute them. Well, that's the way, that's the way I like to present it, and that's an right. idea that actually goes back to Borel in mm -hmm. a, a, before mm -hmm. Turing, or independently of Turing, but it was sort of confused in Borel. But, but that's, the way I like to pre pre that's the way I like to present it. Um, you see, um, let's look back at Turing's paper, and the first thing, he's really talking, you know, it's on computable numbers. Well, what kind of numbers is Turing talking about? Well, he's mm -hmm. talking about real numbers, like pi, square root of 2, e. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, computers don't deal with real numbers, right? They only deal right. with finite precision numbers. So this already looks a little bizarre from our current discrete math point of view. Mm -hmm. But let's play along with, with Turing. So, so how does he show that there's a, a computable, uh, there's a, a, that, that real number, there are real numbers that are not computable? Well, I mean, I think he makes the observation, which is sort of immediate, that the comp all possible computer programs are what's called a countable set. But the real numbers are a uncountable set. It's a bigger infinity. Right. This is using ideas from set theory, from Cantor's theory of infinite sets. Yeah, we've actually talked about that already, so that's good great. on the podcast. That's great. So then if you actually go and see the ideas from set theory, how they work in detail, what you do is you take Cantor's diagonal argument, you apply it to the list of all uh, uh, computer programs, all computable real numbers, and you diagonalize over them, and you, you construct an uncomputable real number. So that's the argument that, that Turing presents. Now, I like to contrast that point of view with a probabilistic point of view, which is closer to my own work, which basically comes from Borel, this idea, mm -hmm. which is if you look at all the real numbers between 0 and 1, well, in fact, it's pretty easy to prove that the probability is 0 that a real number picked between 0 and 1 at random is, uh, is computable. Right. So this, so this argument is an interesting contrast. Instead of carefully using Cantor's diagonal argument to, to construct an example of an uncomputable real, you know, just pick one at random. But that doesn't give you a specific example. Right. You see? And that's why, uh, and, and, and that's where the omega number uh, is, a, is a beautiful example. I still haven't gotten to Turing's halting problem, that's which right. is uh, very famous and, and people know comes from 19, that 1936 paper, but it's sort of hidden. And of course, Turing doesn't call it Turing's halting problem. The word halting doesn't occur either, but it's there. It's definitely there. The way it's there is, if you look at, uh, at, at Cantor's diagonal argument, which, um, which uh, Turing uses to construct an example of an uncomputable real, well, you, you look at it and you say, well, why can't I compute this uncomputable real? Mm -hmm. It looks like you can almost do it. What you do is, to get the nth digit of, of this uncomputable real that uh, Turing exhibits, what you have to do is take the nth computer program in some list of all possible computer uh -huh. programs, and then you just run it long enough to get an nth digit right. until it puts out an nth digit of a real number, and then you just change that. <laughs> so that sounds like... That's it sounds like this, this uncomputable real number is computable. That's right. So but it can't be, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is, so what, what if the nth computer program 
never puts out an nth digit. Uh huh. And you just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting to get a to get a digit which you're going to change to change the diagonal. Mm hmm. And that's the halting problem. It's a it's the special case of the halting problem which Turing shows in his original paper. You can't solve. So the problem is. Does the nth computer program ever output an nth digit? Mm -hmm. And that's a special case of the general question of whether a program will uh, will eventually stop or not. So let me try to recap that, okay? Mm -hmm. So the uh, you take the nth computer, you list all the computer programs in order and say alphabetical order or something, mm -hmm. and then you ask, so they're listed, so on, and then they're gonna each individual computer program is going to start spitting out digits, but it might sort of start spinning its wheels and not actually end up spitting out a digit after some time. We just don't know. Right. Then you take the real number that um, would be you could you, that's different than the nth digit that the nth program spits out if it does spit out a program uh, a digit, right? Right. And so you know that this real number can't possibly be spat out by uh, any given computer program because it's different than any the output that any individual computer program would put out. Yeah, right. it differs in the nth digit from the output of the nth program. So but, that way it gets them all. It that's can't right. be any of them. But the hang-up is that we don't actually know that any individual program ended up spitting out the nth digit. Right? That's right. So you sit there waiting to get an nth digit to change and it never comes out. So you're you're not calculating a real number. You see, so you can't actually calculate this thing. What you can say mathematically is, if the nth computer program never puts out an nth digit, then you'll just pick, say, zero or mm -hmm. nine as your nth oh, digit. Oh, I see. Because you don't need you you don't need it, really. So you just put that. So we have this number that's defined, but we can't actually work out actually what those digits are because of the Turing's halting problem. Right. So what is Turing's halting problem? Well, it's the question of deciding whether the nth in particular, deciding whether the nth computer program will ever produce an nth digit of output. And in general, um, when you go to the essence, it's really the question of you have a computer program and you start running it, and this computer program is assumed to have all the data inside. It never mm -hmm. does any input-output. Well, well it certainly seems possible. It could possible. do output. So it starts when running, and there are two possibilities. It can run forever, <clears throat> or it, at some point it can stop. It can halt. Right. It can finish the computation and stop. And Turing's halting problem is given a self-contained computer program that doesn't read any input, to, but just calculates away mechanically, to decide in advance whether it's going to halt or whether it's going to run on forever. You know, nowadays, when I tell this to students, they have experience programming, you know, and they have experience debugging, and they often have a hard time believing this because they, you know, they're thinking in terms of, well, you go into a for loop and you come out of a for loop and you do this and you do that. Uh, the generic program, though, behaves in very mysterious and totally inscrutable ways, doesn't it? And I guess well, that's the essence. Well, it could start looking for a count example to a famous mathematical conjecture. Right. Like it could start looking for a, a, a zero of oh, a yeah. function, which is in the wrong place, for example. Right. So knowing there are a lot of famous mathematical questions which are really equivalent to asking whether a computer program halts or not. It's the program that sort of systematically searches for a counterexample to that famous mathematical mm. conjecture. So Fermat's last theorem can be put in this form. Um, That's a good way to talk about it. Yeah, the Riemann hypothesis. Uh, the Goldbach conjecture would be. Goldbach conjecture, sure. Yeah. There's a program that that looks for a prime number that it can't be uh, an, uh, that can't, an even prime that can't be expressed as a sum of uh, two primes. Yeah. You know, you can sort of systematically check one by one. If this program never halts, then Goldbach's conjecture is correct, and every 
Even prime is the sum, every prime is the sum of two. I'm sorry, every even number is the sum of two primes. But, um, it, uh, well, I guess you don't include two. <laughs> or you That's have to right. say that one is a prime. <laughs> Two is always a bit of a problem. Right. But so, so, uh, and if and if Goldbach's conjecture is false, this famous conjecture, you're going to uh, check one by one uh, every even number to see if it's sum of two primes, mm-hmm. and you're eventually going to stop because you found uh, 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 an even number which is you know you you can check all the possible primes less than the even number. Right. So some programs halt. Some programs don't halt, and we can't really tell which ones. Right, because if we could, a special case of this problem is 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 is, is the program that that takes you that takes the nth computer program and 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 just checks to see whether halts mm-hmm. if it outputs an nth digit and and doesn't halt if it doesn't output an nth digit. Right. So that's a particular case, a special case of the halting problem that Turing showed. You can't um, uh, there can be no algorithm to do this, or his Cantor diagonal argument uncomputable real would be computable. Right. You see, so that's a very, that's a very beautiful, simple argument. It's an argument from set theory, really, in a way. Cantor's diagonal argument. It's a very simple, straightforward argument. Very powerful. Very powerful argument. So, so the way you get my 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 really bad real number, the the halting problem, the omega number, is instead of looking at an individual programming an individual program and asking whether it holds or not you sort of say well let's generate a pro- let's pick a program at random or let's generate a program by coin tossing mm-hmm. and ask what is the probability that that program halts another way to put it is imagine all possible computer programs in a giant bag and you shake the bag you close your eyes and you pick out a, a, a computer program and then you ask does that program uh, halt or not? How do you how do you weight those? Well, that's it. Took me ten years to get that right. If you if you weigh it the normal way, it doesn't work. the The total probability adds up to infinity, and the total right. probability should add up to one. Right. So, so that's a very good question. You've asked the key technical question, and the way you solve that is you imagine each bit of the program being generated by an independent toss of a fair coin, of course, but. The crucial idea is that the program has to be self-delimiting. That is to say, as, as your computer reads the program, it has to decide by itself where the program ends. The program inside itself has to... Maybe by the syntax, you know, if you have three zeros yeah, in a row or something. Yeah, then it's, yeah. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a little... I mean, most computer programs are self-delimiting because uh, of the syntax of a program. You realize where a program ends because all the parentheses balance. You know, right. all the begin blocks end. But, 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 but it can be more general than that. The idea um, um, of a self-delimiting computer program uh, is uh, is the big stumbling block in explaining all of this. And I've mm-hmm. never found a really good way to mm-hmm. to explain it. Uh, there are many ways to make a program uh, self-delimiting, and the idea is you have to allow them all, mm-hmm. not, oh, just, wow. not just a simple syntactic uh, balance. And it can be done. But the, the, the bottom line is that you're flipping these coin tosses, and then if you reach what must be the end of a program, then you stop. Otherwise, you keep flipping coins, right? Right. If, if the computer... If the computer, if the if the computer has a, has the whole program, uh, it it starts calculating away and either halts or doesn't. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, it asks you for another bit and you flip another oh, coin. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, and so the question is, what is the probability that this process will uh, 
will eventually halt. You get a program and it'll halt. So this or will this process go on forever? It can go on forever, I guess, in two ways. I guess you could, you could keep asking for more and more bits of program, so that would be an infinite program. Mm -hmm. So that, would, that you'd, uh, you don't allow. So the other way this can go on is if you eventually read only a finite number of bits, but, um, but uh, you have the program, it's a finite number of bits, but when you, when you run it, uh, that never stops. Mm -hmm. Or it does stop. You ask, what is the probability that this process is going to stop? If you run on forever asking for more and more bits, this process doesn't stop. So you just think of this, this process going on, and you ask, what is the probability that, that it's going to stop? So it's like a, it's like a sort of a having monkeys on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a, a good way, way to Generating your software. Right. You know, and so you, could, you can get Hamlet, uh, but most of the stuff is going to be uh, garbage. So you get your, you get this number. It's well defined. It exists. Well, for a specific uh, programming environment, I imagine. Exactly. You and have then, to pick what is your programming language. Right. Yeah. What is the computer language? And then, language. Um, but you really can't actually uh, compute this. Yeah, this number is sort of maximally uncomputable. It's sort of maximally unknowable. So you have this number, which is, is, is defined very simply. From a mathematical point of view, it's nothing very sophisticated. You know, it's, mm -hmm. instead of talking about the halting problem, you talk about the halting probability. Mm -hmm. right? And it's just independent tosses of a fair coin. So it's not very sophisticated measure theory. Right? It's a pretty simple probability theory. OK, so you define this number, which, as you said, depends on your choice of computer programming language. And there are some technical caveats that I don't want to go into, as you can imagine on a radio program. But once you do this, you've defined a, a real number, which is the, the, what you would get is this number would be 1 if every program halts. It would be mm -hmm. 0 if no program halts. And since some programs halt and some don't, this number is uh, between 0 and 1. And, and you can imagine writing it out in um, decimal or in binary you know, with uh, more and more precision. And the surprising thing is that these bits or these digits are a complete surprise. They have no mathematical structure. Right. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is you take the idea of Leibniz, uh, and uh, it's basically that idea. There is no theory for the first n bits of this number, no, no. theory smaller than n bits. No theory, right. Yeah. There is no program that will calculate this n bits that is smaller than n bits. There's no axiomatic system uh, which I haven't talked about, but there's no axiomatic system with less than n bits of axioms, which enables you to prove what these first n bits are. Right. It can't be compressed. It can't be compressed. That's right. It That's has no amazing. structure. Yeah. Even though it has a very simple mathematical definition. So this is the example of irreducible complexity or complete lack of structure in pure math. In a way, you could say this is a place where God plays dice mm. uh, with uh, with pure math, with mathematical truth. But a mathematician would say that each uh, this number is a, a single well-defined number That's once right. you dot the i's and cross the t's in the definition, and with a rather simple, straightforward definition, which is true. But if you want to calculate this number uh, bit by bit or digit by digit, these bits or these digits are sort of maximally unknowable. They're a maximum surprise. You see, I'm working on 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 what's unknowable, on the limits of mathematical reasoning. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is you want to find the frontier as accurately as possible. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're like an explorer, and you, you're looking at a mountain range, or you're crossing a desert, and there's a line in the sand, maybe, right. 
up to here we can get. And then all of a sudden there's this crevasse, you know, in this glacier that you can't jump over that looks infinitely deep. And even though it's right there, you know, it, it's, uh, this crevasse would only have to be, you know, I don't know, three meters wide. I think few of us would attempt to jump right. over a crevasse three meters wide, right? Um, uh, even if we're, well, we could be roped and yeah. somebody could catch us. But, but still, we'd never make it to the other side, probably. So, so, so the, the, the idea is you want to get as close to the border as possible. So if I say that picking at random digits gives you, with probability one, a number which is unknowable, you know, that sounds sort of theological or mystical mm -hmm. or mysterious. But if I, if I take a problem from 1936, the halting problem, and I just ask, what is the probability that a program halts? This is a fairly concrete mathematical question. It's a, it's a question that maybe nobody asked before I asked it, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the halting problem was also invented by Turing. Now we think it's natural, but in 1936 it took a lot of creativity and imagination. So this is the line in the sand. This is something that almost looks that you can calculate it, because it has a very simple mathematical definition. You know, it's not a very sophisticated, far-fetched thing. I'm not talking about randomness. Right. You know, what is randomness? Do you believe in quantum mechanics? Do you believe that God tosses dice in the physical universe? Do you think that the physical universe actually contains uh, non-determinacy and unpredictability? The quantum physicists do currently, but this all to a mathematician sounds like gobbledygook or mysticism. Or, But you take the halting problem and you convert it into the halting probability, and that's a very, that's an almost computable number, actually. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at it, you think you... You, 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 you can sort of compute it in a weak sense because you can get better and better lower bounds. Right. You know, you just look at more and more programs and you run them for more and more time. And if a program does halt, eventually you'll find that out. Mm -hmm. So this way you can get better and better lower bounds on the halting probability. But this converges incredibly slowly, so slowly that you never know how close you are. Right. And so this number almost looks computable. Uh, because you can't get it in the limit from below, it's just that the convergence is so terribly slow. It's non-computably non slow. I'd actually seen a, a paper where someone had computed this for a particular environment for up to a few digits. Is that? Do you know how far anyone's taken that? Well, you know, it depends on the programming language. You know, mm -hmm. this is, it becomes a question of programming details. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine, Chris Kaluda, and some collaborators. Yeah, I think that's what I'd seen. Yeah. Yeah, in Auckland have have um, enjoyed themselves uh, doing this kind of thing. And I don't remember how far they got. I think it was uh, maybe more than 32 bits or less than 64 bits. Uh -huh. Well, look, look, at, look, at one, look, at, look at one example. Let's imagine you pick a program at random in, in, a normal, in a normal programming language. Now, at random means, remember, I'm picking each bit by a coin toss. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that means <coughs> that I'm going to get invalid characters, for example. Sure. So you throw that out. Yeah, but uh, but if you but if you if you generate take only valid characters and you generate them uh, at random with uniform probability, guess what? Uh, syntax will uh, most programs you get will have bad syntax. Right. So so what do you do with the programs that have bad syntax? Well, I guess you could say that they sort of halt for the trivial reason that they yeah. have a syntax error. So. So if you take that point of view, then the whole thing probability is going to be very, very close to 1. It's going to be mm -hmm. something like 0.99999 in decimal mm -hmm. or 0.11111 in, in binary. 
simply because most programs hold for the trivial reason that they're sure that something's wrong with them. You know, so so in in that case, if that's the kind of programming language you're dealing with, uh, then you could get a lot of bits, p perhaps. So the idea being that small, really small computer programs, you know, 64 bits of Omega corresponds to, let's see, divide by eight to get characters, to get bytes. Right. So that's what uh, eight, eight by eight. Sure. So that's eight characters now. If you look at all the programs that you can write in eight characters in most <laughs> programming languages, there's not a whole lot of surprises right. you can get there. Right. So, so you can sort of figure out everything that's going on with the small programs, and that's basically what 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 Chris Kaluta does. But, but you quickly do get into trouble. There, there were some people working on something called the Busy Beaver function, sure. which is related. We've talked about that a little bit too. Yeah, and it's true that for very small Turing machines, you can you can figure out what is the most time they can take or the most ones they can write out, whatever way you define the Bispeeper function. But a surprisingly small number of states, you, you start getting into trouble. Right. It's it, really just wide open still for very small Yeah, programs. because basically you just take a famous mathematical conjecture, mm -hmm. uh, like the Riemann hypothesis or Gobas conjecture, or it used to be Fermat's conjecture, or the four-color conjecture, but they're now proved, and write a computer program that searches for a counterexample. Mm -hmm. And some of these programs are fairly small, not 64-bit small. But you know, but by the time you get to a program large enough to check a famous mathematical conjecture, that you're going to be in big trouble. Sure. So that clearly uh, is is a place uh, you're not going to get to. So the idea is, you just take this famous problem from Turing's marvelous 1936 paper, really revolutionary paper, and you you just change it uh, mm. a little to get this number, the halting probability. And uh, if you do it right. Uh, you want to make sure this number converges, you know, that it's a p between 0 and 1, like a probability has to be, rather than giving you infinity. If you do this right, you find a number which it has a very simple, which has a very simple mathematical definition, the halting probability of a, of a computer program. But if you want to calculate it, if you want to know its numerical value, it's sort of maximally unknowable, like a typical real number is. Right. So this is a very simple way to find a very bad real number, but in a sense it's a typical real number, typical but not like any of the real numbers you see in mathematics normally. It's very, very impressive, very con very stimulating to think about. As I guess you, you know, when you were a kid, I guess that's how you, uh, you got sucked into all of this. It's very, I guess my take on all of these things is they're very seductive, you know, it's so appealing to me. Mm-hmm. It, um, you know, I just find it absolutely. Are you a bit of a philosopher? Because yeah, you know, from a practical point of view, you can say, "Well, can I, will this increase the value of my stock?" <laughs> you know, right? Um, I think, I think if if you if if this kind of thing fascinates you, well, it means that you're a bit of a philosopher. Of course, pure math is also, as a, as, a, as opposed to applied math, in a way, is also a fantasy world. Right. But I like this. You know, this sort of paradoxical quality to all of this is very. Yeah, Pleasure. that's what I find. That's what I found fascinating. Right. That's what I found absolutely fascinating. That's what absolutely obsessed me with all of this. Let me just ask you one other question, though. Sure thing. So I've often wondered, you know, what makes certain games like chess or Go or Mancala, if you know that one, interesting games? And it seems to be cut right to the heart of this particular issue, that you have simple rules with very unpredictable behavior that were right on the cusp of the of unknowable consequences. Of course, these games are finite, so they're not 
undecidable technically, but we could sort of think about Go on larger and larger boards. Um, do you see any connection? Well, yeah, uh, I think that's a good metaphor. I mean, what is the, I don't know Go, although... Uh, well, actually, I think of, not even as a metaphor, but actually even more precisely that here we have a finite set of axioms. And well, the rules of the game. The rules of the game, and that as human beings, we have essentially things happen, but for reasons that the reasons are just basically longer and longer descriptions of why, you know, this particular configuration is interesting, that um, one can't sort of reduce what is a good chess position or a good go position to a, a very short list of rules. If one could, then the game would be boring and uninteresting. But it's precisely that we can't compress the, um, you know, given state. Yeah, into a, I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. Another way to put it is that chess is like Leibniz's uh, Leibniz's view dots. of the universe. Yeah. That you have very simple rules, but it's creating a very rich, diverse, interesting structure. And what makes it interesting, as you said, one of the things that makes it interesting is that uh, you look at a chess position, and it's not easy to see what's yeah. going on or what the right thing to do is. Yeah, and actually, I guess I guess I need to go, but there was another... I wanted to also ask you about this in the context of Wolfram's book. Let me just tell you what ah, I was going to ask. That's a fascinating subject. Now, the, the thing is... Um, but, but the thing that was really interesting was that Steven Weinberg uh, wrote a really, in, really interesting critique of the book that appeared in the New York Review, and it was essentially exactly along these lines that um, that a good scientific theory, by its very nature, takes the real world and reduces it to small rules that allow you to predict quickly and simply what the behavior of the thing is. Where with the cellular automata point of view, it's not science in the sense that you can't predict, precisely, you can't predict what, um, how these things are going to behave. And so they can't make good models for actual behavior of actual systems. Yeah, but and, uh, can, yeah. You've, you've put your finger on the essential point, but I view it the other way around. Hmm. Wolfram's, one of Wolfram's main points, it seems to me, is that if the solar automata is a good model for the, for the physical world, and that's hmm. debatable, hmm. but if this is the case, what that means is that in most cases there will be no computational shortcuts. Hmm. Uh, the, well, that's true. The, <laughs> that's true reductionist but... science doesn't work. Right. In a way, he's putting a kind of ghetto's incompetence theorem for physics. Hmm. He's proposing. Mm -hmm. You see, so so Weinberg is talking about the essential idea, but misses that the essential point is is a sort of a negative one, if you like. Hmm. But uh, with the, which is that there will be no computational shortcuts or no theory for deciding what a physical system will do in advance. You see, it's sort of like taking Turing's halting problem. What Wolfram does is sort of like takes Turing's halting problem and translates it to physics. Okay. In a way, but you can again take this negatively or positively. You can take it negatively and saying, well, then the traditional goal of a theory of everything to have these simple equations which enables you right. to predict and understand everything. Which, of course, Weinberg was heavily involved in. Yeah, that Weinberg kind of wants to do that right. and believes it's possible. That's his, his right. raison d'etre, right? And, and Wolfram is saying that he thinks it's, it's not possible. Now, you can take that as bad, but then you can also take it as good. What this means is the physical universe will keep surprising us. Hmm. You see? So it's sort of, in a way, changing from physics to biology. But it doesn't in physics, things are sort of routine and predictable, but in biology, your spouse or your kids, uh, human society, uh, the world of biology surprises you. Right. It's full of invention. 
it cannot be reduced to a simple equation. But it's a very dangerous idea because it says then that the that we can't predict that that the science is fundamentally limited in its ability to predict. Well, but phenomena. another way to look at it is, you see, the paradigm shift that Wolfram and I are both involved with is sort of like a paradigm shift from fundamental physics to biology. Right, exactly We're really right. interested in creativity. We're just right. in where does all the wonderful stuff that you see around you, you know, uh, mm. beautiful co-eds, for example, gorgeous trees, uh, beautiful waterfalls, uh, jungles, amazingly beautiful birds and butterflies, uh, you know, gorgeous mountains. Where does all this complexity c come from? And, and we want to know where this comes from. And right. um, if you look at a very simple law of physics, that doesn't seem to... We're trying to understand. It's too reductionist, right. Yeah, we're trying to understand why the universe is so rich and interesting and full of beautiful stuff. You know, where the complexity and the richness of the, of the physical world which we see around us comes from. You see, in a way, I mean, I'm not, I love uh, mathematical physics. When mm -hmm. I was a kid, I first wanted to be a mathematical physicist. You know, general relativity, cosmology, quantum mechanics. But before I heard about Gero, that sucked me in. <laughs> but, I mean, mathematical physics is beautiful, but in a way, it contradicts everything we see around us. You know, yeah. because the point of view of the mathematical physicist is simple equations and everything is really predictable, understandable. But you look around you and you see wonderful, beautiful things, lots of right. complicated stuff. You know, Richness. where does this complexity come from? How, right. do, how do the simple equations that govern the fundamental physical world lead to this? And that's really what the issue that, that Wolfram and I are obsessed with, which yeah. is this notion of complexity, why the physical universe is so interesting and diverse and, and full of rich stuff, in spite of the fact that the, the laws of uh, physics and mathematics uh, are supposed to be simple. That's beautifully said. I think we're gonna, I'm going to have to use that, because you really put your finger on it. I mean, again, I guess... Well, I you're, you're asking, you, you're, the, well, you're a really good interviewer, you... Well, I've thought a lot you, about this you've issue. You've thought a lot about this, and you right. know a lot of mathematics, clearly. Well, this particular thing, you know, like, I was... So you're like, asking really good questions. I was, um, you know, in high school when I read Hofstadter's book, mm -hmm. and um, and then to discover that... Um, it's a great book, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of got me... It's very seductive. I have a lot of... I actually have a lot more that I'd like to discuss with you. I do have to go write this test. Well, it's been a it's been a great pleasure, really. We've been kicking around some fun ideas, I think, don't you? No, it's great stuff. Great, it's been a pleasure, Heim. Thank you very much. Bye bye. bye.